So we are going to skedaddle our way through this passage of scripture this evening um, and uh, cuddle up. This is the legitimate time to be brothers and sisters. <laughs> if our speakers, if our speakers cope and if these things don't overwhelm us, we will do something significant tonight. Of that I am certain. So grab your Bibles or this, the text will be on the screen behind my shoulder, I do believe. Mark chapter 10. And this is crazy. I have done some crazy things in my preaching life, but this is right up there, I have to tell you. This is right up there with the best of them. Okay. So as Jesus started, I'm just going to read that. Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell at his, at his, on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false, false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I'm doing really good, he says. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad. He went away grieved, one translation says, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecution and in the age to come, <coughs> eternal life. And many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So, here's the question. What's the key verse? <coughs> Tell the person next to you. What do you think the key idea is? The big God thing in here. <coughs> and remember, there are no real wrong answers. Um, but I'm curious as to know what it is you think catches the eye and is obviously the verse that or the idea that holds everything together. Anyone? Shout it out. All things impossible. God. All things impossible. Sorry? The last will be first. All right, not too bad, not too bad. No one's hit jackpot yet, but not too bad for a bunch of beginners. Not too shabby. Okay, this is one of those stories that we've all heard if you've been around the church for any period of time, whether you were a child or whether you've heard it in topical preaching. And invariably, we land with this idea that Jesus is obviously against rich dudes. 
he's obviously not really um, a capitalist. He's anti-capitalism and he's certainly pro-socialism because everyone knows Karl Marx spoke about the working class who were alienated and oppressed. And so we, those of us who believe something, have created a fantasy world, Karl Marx said, and uh, we live out that fantasy world called religion as an opium of the people. He was the son, grandson, and great-grandson of rabbis. But is that really the idea? Is this passage really talking to us about money? I think not. I think the key passage that actually this whole thing hinges on is found in verse 21. That's right, David Vespelia. I knew that you knew, but you just were too humble to tell us. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. If we don't get that, now don't cheat now, Joe. If you don't get that, this passage doesn't make sense. If you don't get that piece, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I want to suggest, especially with a generation that you are all part of, a generation that wants to be seen and heard, that to understand that is the key to trusting him. If we don't know, I mean really in our heart of hearts, that Jesus loved me, I do not know if I can fully trust him. Many years ago, every, uh, every year, we used to take a group of guys away to a place called Labrie, which was in the Natal Midlands. And it was, very, it was very undeveloped bush country and they carved out this kind of ops course uh, where you would take a team there and you would do everything. You'd do an all-night march in the dark without stuff and you see I mean without flashlights you're just in the dark no phones no compasses you've got to find your way from point A to point B you had to get over walls which were just too high for you and you had to lift each other I mean it was amazing we called it a foofy slide you called it you call it a uh, la, 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 la. what do you do when you come down a zipline zip thank you I mean, you have to do all of that. The problem with the zipline is that there were guys at the bottom catching you with ropes. It wasn't water that you landed in. But one of the most difficult exercises we saw every year is when we had to stand up on a high kind of platform and then fall backwards and trust that the guys below us would catch us. If there's no conviction that they love me, I'm not sure that I can trust them. And every year the person who struggled the most was the one who came from brokenness. Who was this guy really? Well, the three Gospels tell us these things about him. One, he was young. Two, he was a ruler of some sort. And three, he was extremely rich. And what makes that curious is that he ran to Jesus. Now, we all know that it was very uncool socially if you were wealthy or you were in leadership of any, of any kind to run. Remember Sting's song, Englishman in New York? He says this, um, Takes more than combat gear to make a man. Takes more than a license for a gun. Confront your enemies. Avoid them when you can. A gentleman will walk but never run. See, this sense of I'm a dignified person, I walk with a nice walking stick, and I will not dehumanize or degrade myself by running. What compelled him, guys and gals, to run to Jesus? Overriding all social protocol, all sense of dignity and respect. And then he kneels at Jesus' feet. 
That is a posture of incredible humility to kneel at someone's feet. You know, can I say this? I would love us to break the Orange County style of worship, that super mellow, lamenty kind of passive form of worship. Don't you love airports? The arrive section. The arrival section. I love the arrival section at airports. When I arrive in Perth to see my family there, you come down an, uh, an escalator and at the bottom is the waiting area. And to see my four little grandkids, my daughter and her husband, to see little grandkids scream out, Papa, Papa, and run to me and kind of almost tackle me and jump on me and hug me and kiss me. And, um, you know, then my daughter sidles over with her big brown eyes and she tears. Hey, Dad, great to see you. And then Mark, my six foot four son-in-law. Hey, Pops, nice to see you. But you see, there is something appealing about the greeting. And there's something beautiful when we find Jesus so compelling that we can't have hands in pockets. We can't, unless it's cold and freezing Wisconsin style. When we are so in love with Jesus, we rush to Him, we reach out to Him, that we communicate all possible postures of worship. That's what He did. He came and knelt at Jesus' feet, saying, I recognize that you are worthy. And then He says this, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that means He was a Pharisee or at least of a Pharisee tradition, because the Sadducees did not believe in eternal life. But the, sad, the Pharisees did. See, there is something here I want you to understand about just how compelling transcendence is. How amazing it is to believe in life hereafter. David Brooks, my favorite New York Times columnist, was interviewed two weeks ago. And uh, he said that a recent survey found that in the last few months, one third of all millennials have contemplated suicide. That is a, an overwhelming statistic. Why? We live in the wealthiest civilization of human history. We have more goodies at our disposal than ever before. We have more liquid capital. We have finer homes. Our chariots are far more appealing than those of yesteryear. We have friends, we have possessions, we have goods, we have clothing. Why? Because we've lost touch with transcendence. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Look, dude, please tell me, is there life after this? Is there more to it than this? Or to quote you too, I've climbed the highest mountains, I've run through the fields only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The beauty of the question and the collection of those two words, eternal life, in the Hebrew, and I cannot say it, I tried all afternoon only to embarrass myself repeatedly. But it speaks of an engagement of eternity already. It means something has begun inside of me. I will close my eyes one day. I've asked the Lord in my mid-80s. 
I will close my eyes and I will open them and what I will see will be the most magnificent face of the one who's loved me more than anyone else has loved me on this planet. The look that he gave that young man he will give to me as he utters my name for the eons of the ages to hear and the multitudes of the millennia to hear Jesus call my name and then yours. If you come after me. And this deep longing of this young man is to say, please tell me there is more to this than simply eking out an existence or as the one commentator speaks about, I'll try and say it to embarrass myself, he yahai olaham, which means living a lasting life, not a fleeting life, but a lasting life. John chapter 17 verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one that you have sent. Let's just quickly, and I'm going to take a few moments to just land, how does Jesus engage him? Three very simple ways. Remember, he looked at him and he loved him. And so Jesus asked, why do you call me good? He is looking for something. I'm so jolly compelled and excited by this tonight. He's looking for something. What is he looking for this rich young ruler to say? I think he wants him to say, sir, you are good. Because like Peter, I see that you are God amongst us. I think that's what Jesus is waiting on tippy toes. Well, why do you call me good? But he's silent. Goodness, according to Nietzsche, he said, God is dead and we've killed him. And so without God and the sense of objective, absolute morality and virtue, what do we have? We have what Nietzsche calls perspectivism. My truth and your truth. The only problem, he said, and I'm not going to comment, but I want you to finish the sentence. This relativism, my truth, your truth. This relativism ends up with what he called the power of the will. The one with the strongest will determines our moral code. The one with the strongest will, the one with the most dominant presence, determines what is right and wrong, good and bad, according to Nietzsche. What was Jesus looking for? He was looking for this young man to look up into his face and say, Jesus, because you are the Messiah. You are the one we've waited for. That's, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's my grandson. Funny story, actually. Funny story. A, 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 a Pentecostal black church used a church parking lot <coughs> and the cops were called, not because they were black, not because they, the, the sound system, but because everyone was in, the, was in their cars. And when the preacher preached, their agreement was not amen preacher brother it was honking their horns so 10 o'clock in the morning there was a parking lot full of horns being honked and the neighbor said come on shut them down please he arrived he looked and he said no carry on so that was my grandson being totally pentecostal on me at that moment in time jesus was looking dear friends he was looking for this young guy to say you are who they said you are but silence ensued then secondly Jesus lists six of the Ten Commandments. Why not the other four? Why didn't he mention, you shall have no other gods besides me? 
You shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not misuse my name. You shall remember the Sabbath. Why didn't Jesus mention those? Well, because the young man had handpicked the commandments that he worked at. Look at me, I don't murder. Look at me, I don't lie. Look at me, I don't cheat. Look at me. What was Jesus looking for? I want to argue Jesus was looking for that notion in the man's face of grace. No, but Jesus, you don't understand. I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. Jesus, that's what I do. Oh, he said, no, 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 I got this. Since I was a kid, I didn't murder. Since I was a kid, I didn't steal. And I think Jesus' heart sank and he said, you don't understand it. This is not works. Checking them off one after the other. This is being, being in love with the Father. So when Jesus could not find what he was looking for in this young man in goodness nor in grace, he had one more thing. One of the authors I read said this, the young man was looking for validation of his spiritual performance by a religious society by keeping the laws. I'll say that again. He was looking for validation from the religious society. Look at all the laws I keep. Aren't I a good believer? But he was also looking for validation of his wealth. Look how well I have done in business. Tim Keller says, man, this guy, any pastor would have wanted of good moral standing and a wealthy dude who probably gave a little bit. And I thought, wow, Keller, you're right. But what was Jesus looking for? He was looking for Zacchaeus. He was looking for another man who jumped out of the tree and said, half of my money goes to the poor. And those of you that I've ripped off, I will give back fourfold. You see, Jesus was not fundamentally against wealth. What Jesus was dealing with, and I quote Keller, was the monster in the man's heart. That's why I'm so passionate about this message tonight. Jesus looked for the monster that kept this young man captive. Wealth was incidental. Wealth happened to be his monster. But the question we have is, what is our monster? What is that thing that keeps us captive, that Jesus looks with love into our eyes and into our hearts? And he says, I can be quiet because you are a rich person of moral character and I want you in my church. Or, oh my dear son, I love you so deeply. My dear daughter, I love you so deeply, but you've got a monster in your heart. And today is about Monsters Day. It said he was dismayed by this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. Why was he grieving? Because Jesus asked something of, of him that he was not prepared to die for or die to. It's an amazing story. You know, there is a, a legend, an English legend, that's actually found in Arabic writings as well. And it's about St. George and the Dragon. And the story is told of a little village 
in Arabic writings, it's the village of Silene in Libya. And this dragon poisoned the waters and, and, and affected the whole community. And so the community came to see the dragon and said, how can we stop you poisoning our water and our very livelihood? And he said, I want two sheep sacrificed to me in any unit of time. But when the sheep ran out, he said, I want two humans to be sacrificed for me. And so they decided by lot to choose different humans until it came to the ruler's daughter. And the ruler offered anyone who would go and slay the dragon or take the daughter's place, well, would get wealth. The family would get wealth. And no one came forward to try to protect the daughter from the dragon. St. George arrived on his steed and found out about this. And he met the daughter as she was walking in full bridal regalia down to the water to be sacrificed to the dragon. And he engaged her and said, I will fight on your behalf. Oh, she said, please do not do that. You have no chance of living. You will die. This dragon is a slayer of men and women. And at that point in time, the dragon emerged out of the water. And true knightly tradition of the day, he took his lance and in his steed, he drove and pierced the dragon. He didn't kill the dragon. But he injured the dragon sufficiently for the dragon to, to lie on the side of the lake and ask the princess for her veil. And he tied the veil around the injured dragon and they dragged it back into town. More to the legend, but no time now. Here's my question. Do you have courage? Do I have courage to face our monsters? See, out of Jesus' great love, that's why I think it's love that's the central component here, not wealth. That Jesus looked so deeply into my soul and yours. I know the day my monster was identified by Jesus. I know the day when Jesus looked at me with those same eyes of love and said to me, Chris, this is the monster that holds you captive. Because when you face your monster, you will never forget that day. And it was that day that I had to make a decision. Would I surrender or walk away like this grieving young man? Because the, the ask was too great. Except he left as if something died in him. But it wasn't freedom. It was added bondage. Dear friends, it's cold. You have amazed me. By listening intently in the wind, in the cold, snuggling up to each other. I could have given tonight a miss, but honestly, as I've prepped all week and said, Lord, what is in the text that I'm not seeing? And when I got that, I realized, no, even in the cold tonight, we will deal with monsters. We're going to come to communion. But I want to ask every one of us, what is that monster that were Jesus to look at us today in our... Is it, is it ambition? Is it fame? Is it wealth? Is it identity? Is it beauty? Is it marriage? What is that thing that's holding us captive that drags us?
You are beautiful, some of you young ladies. I can't tell you how protective I am over you. But I have seen guys come in to contexts like this only to peel a beautiful young woman away. And she has been dragged away because her monster never died. Marriage was far preferred to singleness in Jesus. Except the monster was a dragon who sought to consume her beauty, lusting after her very creation. What is your and my monster? Because like this rich young ruler, we can bow before the Lord in humble submission and say, Oh God, would you take my monster? We don't have time to go to Peter's engagement with Jesus. But there is a promise in this life and the next for those who find the courage, St. George, to mount their steed and to slay the dragon. But no one can fight that on your behalf. It's a decision that you need to do. The gospel is Jesus' sovereign empowerment to let me slay that dragon and carry it on my shield, a testimony of how great He is when I surrender to the journey of grace. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank You for this incredible community. What a fun moment. <clears throat> we will remember 2020 for so many jolly reasons, and this is another one. The Sunday after election night, we sat in a parking lot and froze. But we worshipped you and we gathered round the communion table and we listened to the scriptures being expounded. And we came face to face with a thing that wants to devour us, poison the very essence of our soul. And walk away or walk towards. The decision is ours. Thank you. I'm sorry I can't see your faces. I really am. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, probably similar to this, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. If you do not believe that He loves you, you will, never fully, you will never fully trust Him. If you do not believe He loves you, you will never fully trust Him. The rich young ruler wanted validation for his religious performance. Zacchaeus knew he had none. And came the embodiment of grace. Tonight I want us to come around the bread and the grape juice, I think. And allow the precious, wonderful Jesus to empower us to face our monster. Say, Lord, would you take this monster from me? Would you defeat this foe? Slaughter the very one that would want to hold my soul captive. Leave me grieving, 
the death that I'm dying. Maybe someone from every little subgrouping can just come up here and get some, some buns and some communion and just take a moment informally alone or person friend with friend and just break a bread piece of bread together we're going to carry on worshiping